0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, Good afternoon. We are in Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to go ahead and read through chapter 3. We're also going to go ahead and read on to chapter 4 as well. We started our study last week with chapter 3, so some of this we've already covered, but we're going to go ahead and read through the text just to sort of refresh our memories. So chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, And in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, And they were baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when He saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to His baptism, He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented Him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to Me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then He consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread." Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When we started our discussion last week, we talked about the ministry of John the Baptist, and we said that all four of the Gospels begin in a slightly different way, but there is a point where their narratives converge, and that is that the point where John the Baptist suddenly appears on the scene. We said that John was an extraordinary figure. He doesn't appear for a particularly long time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. His appearance is relatively brief compared to some of the other figures that are so prominent in the Gospels. And yet Jesus makes it very clear that John the Baptist was significant. In fact, he says that of all the men born of women, there's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. And we said that John really serves in many respects as a hinge between the Old Covenant and the New. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he came proclaiming a message. And we said that the message that this remarkable man began to proclaim contained three parts to it. It contained a warning, the warning was that the kingdom of God was at hand, or the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And we said that the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is simply Matthew's way of saying the place where God reigns. That is to say, God had come now among men, and He had come to reign. There was a promise associated with john's message as well as a warning and the promise was there's one who is mightier than i the thongs of whose sandals i am not worthy to untie i baptize you with water for repentance but he is coming and he's going to baptize you with the holy spirit we talked about what that meant we said that there are two greek words for baptize one is bapto one is baptizo one has to do with the temporary immersion that's what john was doing temporarily immersing people into the waters of the jordan river But there is another word which means to immerse in such a way that a permanent change takes place in a life. And that's what Jesus was coming to do, John said. The one who was mightier than he was was coming to baptize them with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there was this third element to John's message. And that was the demand to what? To repent. And what does it mean to repent? We said, well, it means to change. Uh, the, The Greek word literally means to have a change of mind, but it's evident by the way that John is preaching here that he's not merely talking about a change of mind, he's talking about a change of heart, he's talking about a change of direction. We said it's not enough to simply be sorry for our sins, we need to acknowledge but also bewail our sins. That's what we say in the Confession every Sunday. And so it's not enough to be sorry for your sins, you need to be sorry enough to quit. So that was the message that John proclaimed out there in the wilderness. And we're told that many people were cut to the quick. Uh, John's message, his preaching was an anointed preaching and people were drawn to him. We're told all of Jerusalem and Judea came out in droves. Uh, We even find here in this gospel lesson that scribes and Pharisees went out to John. And he, of course, referred to them as a brood of vipers. Why did he do that? Well, there's a little bit of background information that's given to us in John. Uh, That is the Gospel of John. Uh, We're told that John the Baptist's fame had spread so far and so wide that the officials in Jerusalem began to wonder if he might not himself be the Messiah. And so we're told an official delegation was sent out by the Sanhedrin to inquire as to whether or not John was the Messiah or not. And we're told that when they went out, John confessed freely he was not the Messiah, that there was one who was coming after him, that he had to decrease, that the one who was coming after him might increase. And so John was quite famous, and all of Jerusalem and Judea, even the religious leaders were going out. Now when they found out that he was not the Messiah, perhaps some of them turned around and went back with little interest in the message that he was proclaiming, and that's the reason why John called them a brood of vipers and told them not to flee from the wrath to come. But the point, you see, is that John's fame had spread far and wide, and he was having a tremendous impact on the people. You know, there are times in the history of the church when there are revivals. And there are periods of great revival, and I know that there are some in this room, as a matter of fact, who pray for revival here in this city and pray for revival in particular here at St. Philip's. I will tell you this much, if you look at the history of the church, at those periods when Great Revival generally has broken out and has lasted for a period of time, not just something that was brief, but lasts for a period of time and sometimes impacts generations, one of the things that you will notice is that those periods of Great Revival were always without any alternative, they were always preceded by a period of Great Repentance. That is to say, before God the Holy Spirit poured Himself out on a people, those periods were always preceded by people having a deep and abiding awareness of their own unworthiness and sin. And it's when we come to the end of ourselves, you see, that God discovers that He can use us in a mighty way, and He pours Himself out on His people. So if you're praying for revival, one of the things you need to pray for in conjunction with that prayer is that people would have a deep and abiding sense of their need for God. A deep and abiding sense of their own unworthiness and their sin. That's what John was preaching. Repent, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, one of the things we didn't get to last week was that while John had a message to proclaim, he also had a task to perform. John was engaged in work, and the work that he was engaged in, of course, was baptizing people. That's what he became known as John the Baptizer, and that's how we remember him today, John the Baptist as this man who went out there in the muddy waters of the Jordan River and baptized people, not the least of whom was Jesus himself. Now, when we think of baptism, most of us generally think of baptism as a particularly Christian rite. And you have to remember that John the Baptist was Jewish, and the people that were going out there into the wilderness to be baptized by him were the residents of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. They were Jewish. But we don't think of Jews generally baptizing people. We know that Christians do because those were among Jesus' final commands to his disciples. They were to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men and what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so Christians of course are known for baptism. Baptism is the initiatory rite in the life of the church. In our tradition you can't even receive Holy Communion unless you have been what? Baptized. That is the sign that you have been included within the visible church. So we don't think of Jews, we certainly think of Christians, but not Jews as engaging in the practice of baptism. But actually In the first century, there were occasions when Jews did use baptism. Now, it wouldn't have been in the same formula that we use it today. That is to say, in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they did do religious or ceremonial washings. Uh, This generally had to do when somebody was a convert to Judaism, proselyte baptism. Uh, males, of course, if they converted from a foreign religion to Judaism, had to have, as a sign of their conversion, circumcision. Um, we call this a sacrament, an outward and visible sign of a what? Oh boy, that was a little weak, but that is correct. Somebody, We need to go back and, and memorize our catechism again. That's right, a sacrament is what? It is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace or transformation that's supposed to have taken place. That's what it symbolizes. And there is a sense in which the Jews had sacraments as well, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. For males, that was circumcision. But there were times when people who were females converted from another religion, and oftentimes they would go through proselyte baptism. Or, if a Jew had wandered away from his faith, embraced another faith, and then repented and come back, they could be circumcised again, so what did they do? They would oftentimes have one of these ceremonial washings or cleansings. So baptism did exist within the Jewish community when it came to proselyte baptism. There was also baptism of a form within the Essene community. Essene purification is what it was known as. Uh, The Essenes were a sect of Judaism. Uh, They lived south of Jerusalem in the wilderness, in the Judean wilderness, in the area, incidentally, where John the Baptist was preaching. Uh, Many people have argued, scholars, and I think somewhat persuasively, that John the Baptist was a member of the Essene community. Uh, The Essenes were nonconformist Jews, and they were sort of a mixture of medieval monks and charismatics. Uh, they were charismatic in, in many ways in terms of their outlook and their theology, but they were for the most part a monastic community. Uh, Does't necessarily mean that they were solely male. Um, they would be very much like the Moravian communities, for example, that existed in portions of North Carolina in the 18th and 19th centuries. But they were certainly nonconformist. They were nonconformist and they had all kinds of rites and rituals. Incidentally, this is where in this area of Qumran, uh, this ancient Essene community is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So those of you who've been to the Holy Land and have been to Qumran and seen the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the latter part of the 1940s, uh, this was the community there. And we know that baptism or ritual purification, washing, was a big part of the Essene community. Uh, There were lots of which were known as mikvahs. Uh, You still see them in um, excavations in Jerusalem even today. And people would go down into these pools and they would wash themselves as a sign of repentance or as a vow was taken. So we do know that baptism did take place within the Jewish community. But nevertheless, we have to point out that John's baptism was really different. It was not like the typical Jewish baptism that people were familiar with. To begin with, John's baptism was not for people who were converting to Judaism. It was for people who already were Jews. And it wasn't necessarily just for purification, something that you did over and over again. It was a baptism for Jews, and it was meant to be a baptism once and for all. and it was for what it was a sign of repentance it was a sign of repentance look again at what he says in matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse excuse me matthew chapter 3 beginning at verse 7 but when he saw many of the pharisees and the sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This was a baptism for Jews. And they were to repent of what? They were to repent of their presumption. The presumption of what? The presumption that simply because they could trace their lineage back to Abraham, that meant that they were automatically the children of Abraham. See, that was the presumption that they had. Well, aren't we something special? Oh yes, the pagans need to to confess their sins, and they need to convert. The males need to be circumcised, and the women need to be washed, but that's not us. We are God's chosen people. We are a holy race. We are set apart. But John was reminding them that in the kingdom of God, there is no place for presumption, he was reminding them that God has no grandchildren, which is to say nobody gets into the kingdom of God, you see, on someone else's coattails. Sometimes that's the way we think, isn't it? We think, well, I, I have been particularly good, but my mother was a saintly woman, and on the basis of her goodness, I, of course, I'm going to get in. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the old movie, Life with Father, um, if you haven't, you ought to rent it. It's a, it's a great movie. Well, you don't rent movies anymore, do you? I guess you get them on Netflix or on whatever it is, you, you live stream them or whatever it is, but it's a classic movie. I think it was made in 1947 and uh, it stars Irene Dunn and William Powell and a very young Elizabeth Taylor. She must be about 15 years of age in the movie. It's a wonderful story. It's based upon a book that was written earlier than that. But the movie's about a family of Victorians living in New York. They are affluent. Father is a banker. Um, It just so happens they're Episcopalians. And um, they are the Day family. And uh, it's a wonderful story. But in this portion of the, the movie, there's this scene where Father is sitting at the breakfast table... And they have about 12 children in all, Mr. and Mrs. Day, and they're all redheads. And um, the youngest little boy comes up to his father and he says, Father, this Sunday I'm going to be confirmed. Would you be so kind as to rehearse my catechism with me? And father says, all right, well, hand me the prayer book. And so he starts going through the prayer book and he starts off with the old catechism. What is your name? The boy gives his name and he said, Who gave you your name? My sponsors in baptism. What does baptism represent? And a little boy, instead of answering the question, says to his father, he says, Father, when were you baptized? And the father pauses for a moment and he said, Well, you know, to come to think of it, I don't think I ever was. At which point, mother, at the other end of the table, says, Claire, that's nothing to joke about. And he said, no, Vinny, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was never baptized. He said, you know, my parents were free thinkers. He said, come to think of it, I am convinced I never was baptized. And so the whole rest of the movie revolves around the plot by the whole family, including the rector, who they bring in, to persuade Father to be baptized. And he doesn't want to be baptized. And at one scene in the, in the midst of the movie, Mother and father get into this big row. And she said, Claire, I'm not even sure if we're married. He said, "Vinnie, we have 12 children. If we're not married now, we never will be. And she said, well, I just can't bear the thought of going to heaven and you not being there. To which he replies, oh, Vinnie, you are so good. God would give you anything that you want. He would never deny me access if you were pleading on my behalf. Now, what is that? That is a form of presumption, you see. And while the movie is hilarious and it's well done, this is no laughing matter. This is serious business. And that is exactly what John was saying to these people who were coming out to hear his message. He was saying, repent, yes, turn from your sins, but also turn from the presumption that simply because you can trace your lineage back to a particular person or to a particular race of people, that automatically makes you superior to all others and an automatic shoe-in to the kingdom of God. It is not the case. Now Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn for just a moment to the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, you'll see what I'm talking about here. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's a very famous passage, you're all familiar with it. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now there's presumption right there. How can you tell us that we'll be set free? We are the children of Abraham. We've never been slaves. Well, anybody that knows Jewish history knows that that was a bald-faced lie. They'd been slaves at any number of points in their history. My goodness, when they were delivered from their captivity in Egypt. They had been slaves for over 400 years, making bricks without straw. They had been slaves of the Babylonians. They had been slaves of the Assyrians. They had been slaves of the Persians. For all intents and purposes at the time that this was taking place here in the Gospel of John, they were slaves of the Romans. And Jesus calls them on it. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And then Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 44, and your father is the devil. So here were people coming to Jesus and presuming that simply because They were Jewish in their heritage, but they were automatically part of the kingdom of God, and he makes it very clear, no. You have to become a child of God, but that does not happen by birth. It happens by adoption. Paul says something very similar to this in Romans chapter 9, in that great letter where Paul fleshes out this great distinction between law and grace. He says this in chapter 9 a great chapter by the way on the doctrine of election and predestination and don't ask me to go into it because we don't have the time to do that today but in chapter 9 verse 6 paul writes but it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel and not all are children of abraham because they are his offspring but through isaac shall your offspring be named This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as His offspring. Well, that is what John was proclaiming out there in the wilderness. People needed to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God had arrived. And if you wanted to be a part of the kingdom, if you wanted to be included within that covenant community, then you needed to repent of your sins. And you could not presume that simply because you had gone to church your whole life or simply because you'd gone through rites and ceremonies, simply because some bishop had laid hands on your head and confirmed you. I can't tell you how many times I have had people who have renewed their baptismal vows, who have been confirmed as a child, And years later, all of a sudden, the gospel takes on meaning for them. They hear the word preached and the light bulb goes on and they want to renew their baptismal vows because they tell me that when they were confirmed as a child, it was simply a rite of passage and it didn't mean anything to them. Well, that is exactly what John the Baptist was saying to these people. Repent. Turn away from that. Do not presume. The kingdom of God has arrived. You can be included, but it is not by virtue of your birth. It is not by virtue of your heritage. It doesn't matter if you're a member of that society or that organization. You become a kingdom of God. Why? How? By the forgiveness of your sins and adoption into the family of God by His grace. Turn your back on those old ways and turn your face toward God. No one gets into heaven on somebody else's coattails. You may get into the White House that way. (laughs) It's been known to happen. But you do not get into the kingdom of heaven. Let me repeat what I said earlier. God has many children. He has no grandchildren. Do you understand what I mean by that? That is to say that God adopts us as his children... But that doesn't mean that our children are automatically, because we are God's children, His grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Which makes our task as parents all the more important. So that was the message John was proclaiming. That was the task he was performing. Which is why what happens in verses 13 and following of Matthew chapter 3 is so shocking. Because if this is what the baptism is all about, if this is what the message being proclaimed was all about, then why is it that we find Jesus, of all people, coming down from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him? This is a baptism for repentance. Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world doesn't need to repent of anything, does he? Furthermore as far as presuming to be a son of god that is exactly what jesus was he was the only one actually who had the right to presume and yet he shows up here in matthew chapter 3 he goes down to the jordan river to be baptized by john john recognizes the problem because in verse 14 we're told he would have prevented him saying wait a second i can't baptize you you need to be baptizing me Jesus, I appreciate you showing up here, but i got to be honest with you, (laughs) this doesn't apply to you. (laughs) And how does the Lord reply? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And finally, after that, John consented. And Jesus was baptized, and immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What was the Lord doing here? By baptizing, being baptized. He didn't need to repent of any sins. He had no presumption. He was the only one who truly was, by right, a Son of God. What was He doing? I'll tell you a story. I shared it in a sermon some time ago, but it's a wonderful story that I think helps us to understand what Jesus was doing on this particular occasion. During the Second World War, in the period of the Blitz in 1940, when London was being bombed by the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, whole sections of London, particularly the East End, were struck by bombs. The city was devastated. Um, and many of the royal families of Europe. In those days, uh, there were not as many democracies as you might think. There were still many uh, countries that were ruled by royal families. You'd be amazed at how many monarchies still exist in the world today, even in Europe. There's a king of Spain, for example. Many people don't realize that, but there's a king of Spain, uh, the king of the Netherlands. Um, Many countries have monarchs. But, of course, the most famous monarch in the world at this time was, of course, the King of England, George VI, who was married to a woman by the name of Elizabeth, uh, recently deceased, the queen mother, and they had two daughters, the present queen, Elizabeth, and her younger sister, Margaret. Now most of these royal families, when the war broke out, fled their countries because so many of those countries were invaded by the enemy forces, by the Germans, and so many of them escaped to other parts of the world. By the way, large numbers of royal families came here to America to seek refuge. It's kind of funny, isn't it? We had lots of monarchs uh, living in America in the 1940s. And everybody expected that the British royal family would probably leave as well, get out of the country. You know, they were evacuating children out into the country to live with other families and so forth. And everybody expected that the royal family would do the same, but the king had made it very clear that he was not going to leave, he was going to stay in London. And on one occasion, uh, Buckingham Palace was hit by a bomb. It, It was hit several times, actually, during the course of the war. But on this particular occasion, it was a very near miss, close call for the royal family. And they were sitting in a room, and a bomb fell in the forecourt and exploded. And it blew out the windows. And the royal family had just left the room a moment before. And had they not left a moment before, they probably all would have been killed. So it was a very near miss. And the next day, the royal family was seen, along with all these reporters, walking through the wreckage of Buckingham Palace, stepping over the rubble and looking at the damage that had been done, and somebody ran up to the queen mother, and they asked her, they said, Your Majesty, uh, how does it feel to have your house hit? And she replied, well, it actually feels good. She said, for the first time, I'm able to look the people in the east end in the eye. In other words, I I know what it feels like to face the danger. I know what it is to face the loss. And then came the next question. Now, you know, King George VI had a stutter, so uh, newsmen in those days were a little more sensitive than they are today. And uh, they wouldn't shoot out lots of questions at the king. But the queen mother, the queen, uh, they were not afraid to ask her questions. And she was a Scotswoman, so she was not afraid to answer right back. And on the next question that came out of the reporter's mouth was this. He said, Your Majesty, will the princesses be leaving the country? The assumption being, okay, now your house has been hit, you face imminent danger, you're going to send your two daughters somewhere where it's safe. And the queen immediately shot back. She said, Sir, the princesses will not leave unless I leave. I will not leave unless the king leaves. And the king will never leave his people. And King George VI and the royal family remained in England and in London for the greater part of the war, right up to the very end. And you'll recall that in that famous scene at the end of the war, on V.E. Day, when they came out on the balcony, Winston Churchill came out and it was the king and it was Winston Churchill. Now, Churchill, of course, was a great man, And he was a hero, but the king became the symbol of resistance. And on V.E. Day, the crowds rushed down the mall and they flooded that area in front of Buckingham Palace around the Victoria Memorial and they began to shout at the top of their lungs, we want the king, we want the king, we want the king. See, it symbolized the fact that the king was with his people in all of their suffering, in all of their pain, even in the face of death. Jesus, when he came down to the Jordan River, to those muddy waters, to be baptized by John, had no need of repenting. He had no need to repent of any kind of presumption. But nevertheless, he came down to the people who did have sin, who did need to repent, and in love for them, He formally associated with them in their suffering, in their pain, in their brokenness. And he took their burdens upon himself, even though he was nothing like them, to prove to them that the king had come and the king would never leave his people. Now that's a glorious message for us. And that's what the baptism of Jesus was all about. That's what was taking place there in that Judean wilderness. But, as the old saying goes, and if you've heard me say so many times before, no good deed goes unpunished. Look at chapter 4. Look at the way chapter 4 begins. We're told that Jesus went down into the waters of baptism, He was baptized by John, And all of a sudden, as he came up out of the water, there was a coronation service, since this is the king. The heavens were torn open. The Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. And he heard a voice thundering from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. This is the Son. With him I am well pleased. And then the very next verse says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark's version, and we'll come back to this, Mark's version is even more emphatic. We're told the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, how many of you find that to be a little strange? (laughs) Jesus is being tempted by the devil. Now, most of you are probably familiar with that story. But have you ever noticed that the one who leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? Is not the devil. The devil's waiting for him there, but the one who leads him there is what? The Spirit. That seems very strange to us. That doesn't seem to make much sense to us. That's not exactly what we would expect. And yet that is exactly what the text says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now part of the problem here is the word test or tempt. It can be used in a negative sense. When we think of somebody being tempted, what do we think of? Well, We think of that person who just before this class began came up to me and said, would you like a chocolate chip cookie? And I'd just been to the doctor day before yesterday, and I got read the riot act about losing weight and blood pressure and all that sort of thing, and there she was. (laughs) Dangling this right before my eye, this most delective... The devil comes in many pleasing forms, by the way. We think of temptation, that's what we think. Somebody who is out there with the designs of tripping us up, of causing us to fall or to fail or to sin. And while it's true that the Greek word here for tempt can be translated that way, it's not always translated that way. It can also be translated not merely as tempt, but also, as I said, as test. And when it is used to describe a testing, it doesn't mean testing with the intent of causing the person to fail, but it means to test them to prove their worth. All right? This is the way James uses it in his epistle. Uh, go to the epistle of James. Martin Luther called James an, a right strawy epistle, but actually, it's a wonderful book. Martin Luther misunderstood it, unfortunately. He was a great man, but he got this wrong. But here's what James says at the very beginning of his book. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the 19th century, many farm implements and military weapons that were produced in Germany or in the German states oftentimes bore a stamp or a mark on them. The stamp was iron-proof, or the old Prussian word Eisenhower, which meant iron-tested or tested iron. What did it mean? it meant that this piece of equipment that you were purchasing, whether it was a blade, a knife blade, or a sword blade, or whether it was a farm equipment, something that would be used to plow your fields, the steel had been tested in the fire. It was trustworthy. Well, that's the kind of testing that Jesus underwent. That's why the Spirit led Jesus out there into the wilderness. You'll notice in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has already been declared to be a number of things. In the genealogy, we notice that he was the children of what? He was the child of Abraham. He was the son of David. He was the Savior. He will save his people from their sins. He was all of these things. And now, there at the baptism at John in the Jordan River, he is declared to be what? God's beloved son. And now what happens out there in the wilderness is that Jesus is going to be tested. Tested in such a way that it will prove his worth. His worth as the Son of God and His worth as the one who is going to be able to fulfill God's plan and purpose in history. So that's really what the word means. It's captured, I think, in one of the great hymns that we have, How Firm a Foundation, that has this stanza. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. Think about that. Fiery trials. My grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. See, that, that's the idea. That's what it means to be tested. Um, if you go, even today, to places like Istanbul and you go in the Grand Market, you can see metal gold and silver smelters there. They, are, they will uh, make gold and silver jewelry. And it used to be in the old days that they made this from coins that were given to them by tourists. So when coins were made of silver, uh, they would give you these silver coins and you pay them and they would melt down the silver coin. Now, of course, the coins weren't pure silver, they had a lot of other elements as well. But what they would do is they would apply heat to the small pot, they would drop in the coin and it would get melted down. And the more heat that you applied, what happened? The impurities would rise to the surface. And then the person who was making the jewelry would take an instrument and he would scrape off all of those impurities from the top and throw them away. And he'd apply more heat. And the more heat he applied, the more impurities floated to the surface. And how did he know when the silver was ready to be used, when it was purified, when he could look in and see his own reflection staring back at him as though he was in a mirror? That is what God does with us in our lives. There are times when you and I go through testing. There are times when I go through difficulty. And what God is really doing is He is sometimes applying the heat. But the flame shall not hurt thee, I only design what? Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's what that hymn is saying. When we talk about Jesus being tested or tempted in the wilderness, this is the idea. That is why the Spirit led him out. He's been declared to be the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior. But now God is going to prove it by attesting. Now that was God's intention, and that's why the text begins with the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. The devil has his own plan, however. And the devil's plan is not to prove Jesus, but to disprove Jesus' worth. He has a part to play in all of this, and his part is to bring the Son of God down. Now, one of the things I want to say about the devil is first of all, as Christians, we do take the devil seriously. We do believe that he is real. But you do need to understand that the devil is not the opposite number of God. That's what we have a tendency to think. You know, you got the angel on this shoulder, and you got the devil on this shoulder. And I want you to understand God and the devil are not equal. God is eternal. The devil is not. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. The devil is not. Now, that's not to say the devil is not powerful. It just means that he's not all-powerful. God is omniscient. The devil is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He knows a great deal more than you and I do because he's been around a lot longer, but he does not know everything. He may be a very wily creature, but he's still a creature. And God is the Creator. So while the devil is tempting Jesus, God knows how this is going to work out. God is not surprised. God is not taken by surprise. But that's the devil's intention. The devil's intention is to bring the Son of God down. And you'll notice that in the case of Jesus, the temptation comes from the outside. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as the new Adam. Which is to say that Jesus' role is to undo the work of the first Adam. Many of you have heard me say this before. That the, the purpose is to get the Adam project back on track. The first Adam did what? He brought ruin to the race by his disobedience. The second Adam will bring salvation to the race by his obedience. So that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is functioning as the new Adam, and he steps out there in the wilderness, and he is tempted, he is tested in the same way that the first Adam was tempted. The first Adam was tempted from the outside. Jesus is tempted from the outside. Now, this is different from you and me. The liturgy of the church speaks of us being tempted by three things, or assaulted by three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, well, how are you doing? And I'll say, well, just fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and not necessarily in that order. But you and I, that's what we battle against. We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, two of those things come from the outside. The world, that is to say, an unbelieving culture, it's always assaulting us. My goodness, you can't step out on the street without being assaulted by an unbelieving, secularized culture. But it's not just that you and I are being assaulted by the world. We're also being assaulted by the devil. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that any single one of us is actually being tempted in the same way that Jesus was tempted or Adam was tempted by the devil personally. As I said, the devil is not like God. He's not omnipresent. He can't be at all places at all times. Probably very few of us have ever actually been tempted by the devil himself. There are much bigger fish for him to fry than you and me. But that's not to say that we haven't been tempted by those who work for him. If you you want to know more about that, Brian McGreevy will tell you all about the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which is what this is really all about. But while we are tempted as human beings from those two things on the outside, we are unique in that we are also tempted by that which is on the inside. The world, the devil, but also the what? The The flesh. The flesh. You and I struggle because of our flesh. Jesus didn't because he didn't have a sin nature. You and I are afflicted with the illness from the moment of our birth. We call it original sin. David in Psalm 51 says, even before I was born in my mother's womb I was a sinner. We are born with the disease as a result the transgression of our forebearers. But Jesus, you see, never had that. So he was tempted from the outside, not from the inside. But there is something within us that when the world and the devil come to us, there is something within us that rises up to meet the challenge. You know how this works. Uh, This is what I've called, is what the New Testament calls the evil day. It's when your desires and your opportunities meet. You may have the desire to sin, but not the opportunity. There are other occasions when you have the opportunity but not the desire. The evil day is when the desire and the opportunities meet. And when they meet, it is impossible for us in and of our own flesh, our own strength to withstand. Paul talks at great length about this in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. He talks about the reason why the law cannot save anybody is because of the weakness of our flesh. You know, when most of us think of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, for example, we think that the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to what? Keep us from sinning, right? Isn't that what the Ten Commandments are there? Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. And you go down through the whole list of all the thou shalt that you should not do, and we think to ourselves, that's what the purpose of the law is. The law is to keep us from sinning. Actually, Paul in Romans 7 says it's the exact opposite. The law will never keep you from sinning. The only thing the law does is it actually provokes you to sin. It reveals your sin. Think about it. One of the best examples of this that you will find anywhere in all of Scripture is that when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the very first of which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other. And Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments for the people of God. My goodness, this is wonderful. And he gets down there, and what does he find the people doing? Worshiping the golden calf. Now, go ahead and give them the law, Moses. Thou shalt not have any other gods before. What does the law do to them? It doesn't prevent them from sinning. You see, they already have. The only thing the law does is it reveals their sin. That is what the law is intended to do, my friends. The law of God is never intended to save you. The law of God is intended to condemn you. The law of God functions like a mirror. When you look in a mirror, a mirror can tell you that your face is dirty, but it cannot wash you. The only thing a mirror can do is drive you to the soap and water. And that's what the law of God was intended to do. And more often than not, Paul says, when the law is given, because we are rebellious in our nature, there is something within us that wells up and says, don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. If you're going to tell me thou shalt not, I shall. I have a story from my brother's youth that illustrates this. I call it the parable of the red hot. Remember those little red-hot candies that, you know, sometimes people will decorate things with? Those little cinnamon candies, they're red? It Valentine's Day, and my mother decided to make us cupcakes as a treat. And she decorated them with those little red-hot candies. And then she gave us each a cupcake. Now, my brother was probably about four years old at the time. My mother gave us this, and she said, Now, go ahead and eat this, and drink your milk. And and by the way, don't stick those red hots up your nose. Now I confess to you, it had never entered into our mind to stick the red hot up your nose. I mean, why would you do that? And I have no idea what possessed her to say, don't stick those red hots up your nose. But all I can tell you is that once she said it, there was nothing we wanted to do more. But I, being the older and the wiser of the two, turned to my little brother and said, why don't you stick one of those red hots up your (laughs) nose? And sure enough, he took it and stuffed them up his nostrils like two little, like a double-barrel shotgun. And about a minute later, he starts to cry, because those things are hot, and they're starting to burn. And he's crying, and he's wailing, and my mother comes into the kitchen. She said, what's wrong? What happened? What happened? I said, he stuck a red hot up his nose. (laughs) And she said, I told him not to do that. (laughs) She took a Kleenex and told him to blow his nose, and out came these two little white candies. All the red had worn off. Ah, you see, that's exactly what sin does. That's exactly how it works, isn't it? The minute you say thou shalt not, there's nothing that I want to do more than that. Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you something, but don't tell anybody else. And the minute that happens, what do you want to do more than anything else? And then we say, I've got to tell you something. You've got to keep it to yourself. I, I was told not to tell you this, but the only reason I'm telling you this is so that you can Pray. Oh, that's, that's the one we often use, isn't it? So, so you can pray. What we really mean is P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y. Pray on the misfortunes of others. Well, that was not the case with Jesus. He was not tempted in his sin nature. All this temptation came from the outside. It came from the devil. But it came from the devil specifically. It came from the devil personally. And in this respect, it is very similar to the temptation of the first Adam, who was likewise tempted by the devil. But whereas the first Adam failed grievously, the second Adam succeeded gloriously. And yet, even though their temptations were similar, they were not identical. I want you to think about the advantages that Adam had over Jesus. I want you to think about the advantages that the first Adam had over the second Adam. When the first Adam was tempted, he was tempted where? In a garden paradise. Where was the second Adam tempted? In a desert wilderness. The first Adam had companionship, didn't he? He had a helper. He had a wife, someone who was supposed to help him stay on the straight and narrow. The second Adam had nobody. He was out there all alone. The first Adam had everything that he could desire. You may eat of any tree in the midst of the garden except for one, but as far as the rest are concerned, go at it. The second Adam, we're told, had nothing to eat. He hungered. And so the temptations were similar, but whereas Adam had all of these advantages and failed miserably, the second Adam had no advantages, and yet... He succeeded gloriously. He triumphed over the testing. His true character was proven for all to see. Can the same be said for us? When testing comes into your life, or when temptation comes into your life, one way or the other, God can use the tempting as a testing. The devil will always use it for your downfall. But the question is, how can you triumph? See, God doesn't want us to just slip through this life surviving. God wants us to be victorious. And the question is, how can we be victorious? How many of you have ever faced a testing in your life? I'm not just talking about hard times. I'm talking about those times when you're ready to just throw in the towel and give it all up, as far as this Christian thing is concerned. When you think to yourself, it's really not, nobody else is trying to live a holy life, why should I? I want you to understand how the devil works and I want you to understand how it is that Christ triumphs over him. First of all, I want you to understand, contrary to what Flip Wilson said, the devil doesn't make anybody do anything. You realize that? You know, that's Flip Wilson's old line, the devil made me do it, but I want you to understand the devil doesn't make us do anything. There are occasions, of course, of demonic possession in the New Testament. That's a whole other category. But in terms of his working in our lives, the devil is described here as a tempter. He doesn't forcibly challenge us or forcibly make us do anything. He tempts us to do things. But if we sin, we sin through our own fault. That's how one of the old confessions of the church said, through my fault, through my own fault, have I sinned. I acknowledge. That's one of the reasons why when we confess the sins in the Right One liturgy, we don't say, we acknowledge, I acknowledge and bewail my manifold sins and wickedness. really, Because it's ours, personally. So, it's important to understand the nature of the temptation. It's important to understand Christ's response to it. And it's important to realize that we are out of time. Uh, I thought I would get through more of this. So, You may be wondering, well, over the course of the next week, I'm going to be tempted. How am I going to triumph? You'll have to come back next week and find out how you can do better in the future. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and for your mercy, and we thank you for the example of Jesus, who out of love for us, though he was nothing like us, went down into the waters of the Jordan river and associated with us in our brokenness and in our fallenness and then led by the spirit was tempted tested in the wilderness and proved his worth by triumphing over the devil and now he promises to come and dwell within us by the power of the holy spirit that we too might not just survive in this world but live victoriously grant us the grace over the course of the next week and over the years to come to remember that greater is he that is in us, that being Jesus Christ, than he that is in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, when you come back next week, we'll, God willing, we'll take a look at the nature of temptation and Christ's response to it.